If you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. The, uh, the title, of, if you remember, if you were here last week, the title of our lesson was Sovereign Over Suffering. Sovereign Over Suffering. And this week, the title of our lesson is Sovereign Over Rebellion. Sovereign Over Rebellion. Now, just a quick review. If you'll remember last week in chapter 37, uh, that chapter ended. In fact, if you got your Bibles open and you just look back to 37, that chapter ended with Joseph being sold into slavery uh, in Egypt. Everybody remember that. And so, naturally, you would think if you turn the page to chapter 38 that that story would continue. In fact, the, the rest of the book of Genesis is all detailing the plight of Joseph and, and Egypt and, and what happens with the nation of Israel. But all of a sudden you turn to 38 and it's almost like there's an interruption. Uh, it's not, a, chapter 38 is not about Joseph at all. It doesn't, it doesn't mention Joseph a, a, at all. And so this, it's almost like, well, well, what's going on here? Why is this chapter even, even here? In fact, when you read some commentaries, some critics will even go so far to say that this chapter is a mistake that it's in the wrong place, that it's out of context, that some, some editor in the distant past uh, uh, somehow just put this in the wrong spot. But that's, that's ridiculous. Okay, This is the inspired Word of God. It, it's here for a reason. In fact, as we go through this chapter, we'll, we'll understand as we get to the end of it that it actually serves a very, it plays a very crucial part in the story uh, of Israel. And we'll point that out uh, when we get to the and so don't look at this as an interruption. You know, if we were watching a TV show, sometimes we watch TV shows and there are different storylines, right? And you're following one storyline and then you get kind of a meanwhile back at the ranch, right? Everybody with me? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, this is what's happening. Well, think of this chapter like that. Joseph is in Egypt and a lot of stuff's going to happen. But meanwhile, back in Canaan, right? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, this is what's happening with Joseph's brothers, and this is what's happening with Joseph's family. So let's start with uh, Genesis 38 and verse 1. It says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from uh, his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now that phrase, went down from, means he left. Judah left his brothers. He, he was living in, in, uh, in, uh, in Hebron. He was living with his family, and they're all there on their, 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 their compound or their ranch or wherever there is they're living, and he decides he's going to leave. And he goes to a city of Adullam. Now, Adullam was one of the royal cities of the, of the Canaanites. So this is a pagan city, a Canaanite city, and he has a friend there by the name of, of Hira. And it'll actually tell us later in the chapter that they, are, that they are friends. Now, what's important here for us is that this move for Judah signifies a move away from family, a move away from the covenant people of God, and a step. he's moving away from that, right? And what we're going to see is, through this is he's being absorbed into the culture of the Canaanites. In other words, he's chosen to leave his family for fellowship with Canaanites, with pagans, with with heathens. And that's what's significant uh, about this. Now, let me point something out very quickly. There is absolutely nothing wrong with being friends with unbelievers. If 
your purpose of friendship with them is to convert them to Christ. That is perfectly fine. But when we enter into friendship with unbelievers solely, listen to me carefully, solely for the purpose of companionship, solely for the purpose of camaraderie, solely for the purpose of fellowship, let me tell you, they will corrupt you before you ever convert them. That's what Paul said. Don't be deceived. He said, don't fool yourself into thinking that you can be different from anybody else. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company always corrupts good morals. So if, you, if, if you're, if, you know, I, I've got friendships with people uh, that I am working on them to convert them to Christ. That's perfectly fine. But it's not a friendship solely for camaraderie. Because when that happens, they will corrupt you before you convert them. James 4.4 4 says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Be very careful about those types of friendships and what your purpose is for entering into that, uh, that friendship. Verse 2. And when he's there, so he leaves his family, he goes to this, this city of Adullam, and as he's there, it says, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So he took her and he went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So he's left his family. He's got a friend in this Canaanite city. While he's there, he sees a Canaanite woman. And so he marries her, and they have three sons. Now, I'll remind you once again, Abraham would not allow his son Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman. Isaac told Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite woman. But Judah just throws all this right out the door. See, the idea they knew when, when you enter into marriage with unbelievers, when you enter into a marriage, they're, again, they're going to corrupt you before you ever convert them. Don't do that. But Judah just ignores that advice, and he sees this woman, and she's good looking, and he takes her as his wife, and they have three sons. Once again, you'll see he's left the family of God, He's left the covenant people of God, and he's being very slowly from moving to a city to having a friend. Now he's married. He's being absorbed into the Canaanite culture. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now here we're going to be introduced to a lady named Tamar who is going to be very important to this story. And there's one final... So, so he takes her as a, husband, as a wife for, for Ur, okay? But it says this in verse 7, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, curiosity makes us ask questions, right? And first thing I want to know, well, what did he do? Why was he so bad? Don't you want to know those kind of things? And, and by the way, how did the Lord kill him? The Bible doesn't tell us any of that. No details at all. Because, by the way, it's irrelevant to the story. The point is, she married him, he was evil, he's dead... And, and she needs to be married again. It's irrelevant to the story. So the Bible doesn't even, doesn't even go down that, that, wor that, that road because, again, it's, it's irrelevant to the point of the story. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, this is the second brother, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring to your brother. Now, what's going on here? Now, what's what, what happening here is something called leveret marriage. Leveret is the Latin word for brother-in-law or husband's brother. This is something that's referred to as leveret marriage. Now, it is totally foreign to us here in America. 
we have no understanding of this thing called leveret marriage. But leveret marriage has been practiced for thousands of years. In fact, it is still practiced today in some cultures around the world. It's especially practiced in societies where marriage outside the clan is forbidden. Okay, and so you still see this in some African cultures and, and Middle Eastern and cultures. And it's obviously practiced in Judah's day. And by the way, it would later be codified into the Mosaic Law. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 6. This is what's called leveret marriage. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So once again, this is called leveret marriage, and it serves some very practical purposes. Keep in mind, in that society, it was a patriarchal society. In other words, men ran everything. There's no welfare system or anything like that. So when a woman didn't have a man to take care of her, or she didn't have sons to take care of her, she was destitute. I mean, women needed men to provide protection. They needed them to provide uh, financial support. It was, that was just the way it was in that, in that society. And so this leveret marriage ensured that this woman wouldn't just go out on the street, but this brother stepping in to marry her would provide protection for her. It would, and it, again, it would provide food and clothing and shelter and all, all the other things. Most importantly, as denoted in the Deuteronomy passage, it made sure that the family name was carried on. Okay, that's what Deuteronomy uh, uh, pointed out. Now, here's the way this worked. In effect, the very first son born from this leveret marriage would legally belong to the dead brother. Everybody with me? Okay, legally, in, in, in every sense of the word, the son born to that brother would, would belong to the first dead brother. It's called leveret marriage. And as such, he would be heir to everything the first son would have gotten. Everybody with me? So he would get everything that was coming to the first son, everything that was coming to Judah's son heir, would now belong to this, to this boy, okay? And see, Onan knew that, verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. That's what he's talking about. If he produces a male son with Tamar, that offspring would belong to Ur, and he would get everything that was coming to Ur. And Onan knew that, and he didn't like it one bit. Verse 9 says, So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Okay? You see, Onan knew that any son produced by his marriage to Tamar would take away land and money and property, all the things that would eventually come to who? To him. See, if Ur has no inheritance or has no sons, all that would come to him. So he's actually producing a son that's going to get all this stuff that might... So he says, oh, I'm not going to do that. And so he made sure that that wouldn't happen. And let me tell you, the Lord did not like that one little bit. Verse 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now let me say something real quickly. Over the years, many people have taken this passage and tried to make it a proof text for birth control. 
which is absolutely ridiculous. Okay, this has this text has nothing to do with with birth control. When when, when it refers to what he did, okay, it's not referring to that. The sin of Onan was his rebellion and his selfishness in refusing to provide an heir for his brother. It was his rebellion and selfishness in wanting to keep all the inheritance for himself. That was his sin. That's what he did. That's what the Lord was not was not pleased with. He's rebellious because, by the way, his father had directly commanded it. Go into your go into Tamar and do your duty. And he wouldn't do that. Selfish because he puts his own needs, his own wants, his own desires ahead of his brother, ahead of his family name, ahead of, of everything else. And one more thing. Don't forget this. He put his own desires ahead of the purposes of God. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, the, gene, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. Guess whose name should have been in that list? And Onan the father of so, some son by Tamar. See, go in there and do your duty. Fulfill the purposes of God. Onan says, I'm not doing that. So not only is he rebellious to his father, not only is he selfish, but he's, he's directly against the, self, against the purposes of God. And his name is not listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ before that. By the way, you understand Onan does what every sinner and unbeliever does. They put their wants and needs against the purposes of God. He's doing what every sinner, every unbeliever does. I don't care about Jesus Christ. I don't care about what God wants. I don't care. I won't. That's exactly what Onan did. That's the, the, the greatest sin of, of all. Verse 11. Then Judah said... So, let's recap real quick. He's got Tamar. She marries his first son, Er. He dies. She marries his second son, uh, uh, Onan. He dies. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, again, Judah's first two sons are dead, and in his mind, what's the common denominator? It's her. She's like a black widow or something, right? She's a, a jinx, a curse. If she marries somebody, they die. It, it, it never seemed to, to dawn on him that the problem was with his boys. It's kind of the, the, the parental blindness thing going on there. The problem was always with his boys, not with Tamar. So... So he doesn't really want to get... Now, legally, he has to give that last son to her. He's got to do it. He has really has no choice at all. Society calls for that. Everything, he has to do that. But he is scared to death to do it because he's only got one son left and he doesn't want him to die. In fact, with the death of Onan, she is now legally engaged to Sheila. It just, it, it just, that's just the way it works. Okay? Now, Sheila is still too young to marry. He's still too young to consummate the marriage. Okay? So he says, alright, at least I've got a brief reprieve, right? Because Sheila's too young to marry. So he tells, tells Tamar, go to your father's house and stay there till my, till Sheila, the youngest son, is, is old enough. So he can put it off for a while, but eventually he has to give Sheila t- uh, to her as his, hu- as a husband. But now several years go by, and it seems that Judah is not following through. Verse 12. 
It says, in the course of time. So the time has, has gone by, several years have gone by. Sheila, the youngest son, has grown up. He's now old enough to be given to Tamar in marriage, but Judah's not doing anything. Nothing's happening. Tamar's still in her daddy's house. She's, she's still waiting to hear from, from Judah, and she doesn't hear anything. And so it becomes obvious to her that Judah's not going to keep his word. He's just, he's not going to do what he said he was going to do. Now remember, in that day, not having children was a disgrace. For a woman, not having children was just, that was disgraceful. That was, I mean, they just, that, that was everything to them. And again, as a, not only does she not have a husband, when her father dies, if she has no sons, she'll have nobody to take care of her. Remember, this is a, to them, this is a bad situation, right? So she decides to take matters into her own hand, to put a plan into place. Verse 12, it says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shuda's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, when she hears that, she decides, Okay, it's time to put my plan into place. Now, we might ask, well, why would she choose that moment? Why would she choose that time to put her plan into place? Well, the reason is, is because she knew very well what happened at these sheep shearing events. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, said this, Sheep shearing was a festive time when sexual temptation would be sharpened by the Canaanite cult, which encouraged ritual fornication as a fertility magic. Years later, the prophet Hosea would say this in Hosea 9, 1 through 2. He says, For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on the threshing floor. What's he talking about? You see, in the Canaanite culture, anytime there was a harvest, a wheat harvest, or anytime they were harvesting uh, wool from the sheep, it was a time to worship their fertility gods. And one of the ways that they worshipped their fertility gods was through ritual prostitution. They would have a bunch of what are called cult prostitutes come in. And so it was this kind of this festive time. There was all this stuff going on, as you can and imagine. That was part of the Canaanite culture. So when Tamar hears, they're going up to sheep shearing. She knows exactly what's going to be going on. There's going to be all these cult prostitutes coming in. And she says, now's a perfect time to put my plan into place. Verse 14. So she took off her widow's garments and she covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had been not, not been given to him in marriage. So she realizes very clearly, I, I got to do something because Judah is not carrying through on his word. Verse 15. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Now let me remind you, Tamar has been married twice, right, to evil men. She knows men, okay? She's not some, you know, she's not naive. She knows men. She's been married to two immoral, evil men. But she also seems to know Judah uh, very well. This is very likely not his first encounter with prostitutes. He's not, you'll notice when he goes into the negotiation, he's not naive. He understands what's going on. He's, 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 he's done this before. And by the way, notice Tamar never says, is going to never say a word. 
She's convinced that all she has to do is look like a prostitute, and Judah will take it from there. And that is exactly what he does. Verse 16. So he turned to her at the roadside. Notice she never says a word. She's just sitting there. And he said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. Now, he says, she says, they go into a negotiation, what's going to be the price? And he says, I'll give you a young goat. And she says, okay, well, what are you going to give me as a guarantee that I'll ever get that goat? After all, I mean, in that day and age, the man, after the, you know, the, 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 uh, everything goes on, he could just leave, right? And never send her anything. There's really no way she has to make sure that he would make uh, the, the payment. Now, just by the way, Tamar has no interest in the goat. Just so everybody's clear. She's got no interest in payment. She wants one thing, and that is to get pregnant. That's all she's out for, right? She has no interest in this goat. This guarantee, this pledge, is going to serve another purpose a little later in in time, as we'll see. Verse 18. So he said, what pledge or what guarantee shall I give you? And she said, your signet or your seal, your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her. So she goes back to her father's house, takes off all that stuff, and puts back on the garments of her widowhood. Now, keep in mind, this seal, this, this signet, or this cord and staff, these aren't things you buy at Target. They're not things you buy at Walmart. They're not mass-produced. They are custom-made for a man. The seal, uh, the signet would be something you would, you know, you've seen this on, on movies where they seal a letter and they do the wax and they put the signet. That's what it is. It has a custom seal that says this belongs to Judah. Every man had one that was specific uh, to them. It would have distinctive characteristics uh, for them. This is an example here. Uh, it was kind of a cylinder with a, some kind of carving or engraving. And many times it had a hole in the, the end of it and it was worn on a cord around the, the neck. And so she says, give me your signet, give me your cord and the staff that is in your hand. Verse 20. So when Judah sent, so, so time goes by, he goes back and he does what he says he's going to do. So when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Aniam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. Now, by the way, a very significant change here in wording that, that basically verifies what I said earlier. Judah, when, when he was going up and he saw Tamar, the word used there for prostitute is zona. That's just a normal prostitute, right? But later on, when, when Hira goes up to find her, he uses the word Kadesa, which is a cult prostitute. Okay? So, so he, they expected these cult prostitutes to be there at the sheep shearing. Hira did. So he said, where's the cult prostitute? And they said, we haven't, there's, no, there's not been one here, right? So it just tells us once again that Tamar knew what she was doing. She knew what went on at these, uh, at these events. Verse 22. So he returned to Judah and he said, I can't, I can't find her. And the men of the place said that no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. 
For I have sent this young goat, and you didn't find her. Now here, Judah's in a pickle, okay? He, he's in a little bit of a bind, right? He, he has gone out, and he's looked for her, and they couldn't find her. And so he kind of starts weighing things out. See, she got the best of him, right? She's, she's, she's taking his cord, she's taking his, his signet, she's taking his, uh, his staff, and he knows right now he's pretty much powerless to do anything about it. In fact, he understands the more, if, the more people I send out looking for this woman, the more I ask about it, the more the word is going to get out. And these are the types of things that men sit around a fire and tell stories about, right? Hey, did you hear about Judah? And he becomes a, that's what he said, I'll become a laughingstock. So he just decides, you know what, I'm going to cut my losses. It, it just is what it is. Don't worry about it anymore. I don't want to become the laughingstock of the town. So he does. He just, he just says, I'm not going to do anything about it. Don't worry about it. And about three months go by. And he's thinking, I mean, every day he's thinking, boy, how is this going to come back on me? And a month goes by and two months go by. Finally, three months go by. He doesn't hear anything. But of course, you know, it, it always comes up, right? Verse 24. It says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and burn her. Bring her out and let her be burned. Now, boy, that is just righteous indignation, isn't it? Now, by the way, just so you know, this would not be mere fornication. This would be adultery. Because legally, she is pledged to Shelah. Right? And in that day, when you were pledged, you, that was just like being married. If you, if you had relations outside of that, that was a, considered adultery, not just fornication. And of course, Judah, you know, he hears about her. Oh, you know, let her, let her be burned. Now, this is unusual. Because even later in the Mosaic Law, the punishment for adultery was stoning. Burning was, was set aside for really horrific evil. I mean, very horrific evil. You can see, evil, see some examples of that in Leviticus 20. So why would Judah respond this way with such righteous indignation? Well, isn't it true in life that we tend to cover up our own sinfulness by judging others? We, we tend to be, the, the more sinful we are in an area, the, the, more, the more kind of righteous indignation we have toward that particular area. Romans 2.1, Paul says this, you, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, you practice the very same things. So here's Judah, and he's judging her, and he's doing the exact same things that, that she did. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she stays very calm. She's being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are the signet, and the cord, and the staff. Now, i got to give some credit to Tamar, okay? If I were her, I would have get up on top of a house. He, he going to burn me? He? How dare, are you with me? How dare he? She doesn't do that. She just sends word to him privately. And she said, whose are these? Right? Then Judah identified them, verse 26, and said, She is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. Now, I want to say one thing. She's more righteous. They're both wrong, right? They've both committed immoral acts. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is she's more righteous than I am in that she acted to procure a son that was rightfully hers 
and I didn't carry out what I was supposed to do. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the act itself. Verse 27. So when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. And therefore his name was called Perez, which means a breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, that's the end of the chapter. Now, whether you figure this out or not yet, this, this is a sordid story, is it not? There, there's not a whole lot good in this story, whole, not a whole lot right and true. Um, but if, if you don't figure it out yet, this whole sordid story leads up to the family of Jesus. This whole story leads up to the family of Jesus. Matthew 1, 1 through 16. I won't read the whole 16 verses. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. And it goes right on down to Jesse and King David and Solomon, all the way down, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, of who is called Christ. This whole sordid affair fits right there in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And, and commentators dare to say this is out of place. They, they dare to say this is... Uh, come on. Come on. This chapter teaches us just a few things, and I've got a few minutes, and I want to I talk about a couple of things. Now, I could, again, I could go in here and pull a bunch of stuff out, but I just picked two. Number one... It teaches us the necessity of 400 years in Egypt. Do you remember back in chapter 15, God tells Abram, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And your descendants are going to be in a, uh, enslaved in a land for 400 years. And he says, at the end of 400 years, I'll bring them out with great possessions. And of course, he's talking about the people of Israel in the land of Egypt. Well, this chapter really shows us why that slavery or why that enslavement was necessary. You see, God wanted His people to be spiritually pure, be separate from them. Abraham tells Isaac, don't marry a Canaanite. Isaac tells Jacob, don't marry a Canaanite. But you see, the sons of Israel at this time, there's, there's 12 of them, and they are about as low a spiritual state as you can possibly get. They hate one another enough to kill, uh, uh, at one time, Joseph and sell him off. They're, they're, they're infighting. Judah comes to the point and says, I don't want anything to do with you guys anymore. I'm leaving. And he just, he just walks out. Now listen, I'm sure all the brothers had issues. We know that. But this chapter focuses on Judah because as he is the tribe that's going to produce the Messiah. And because of that, in that respect, he is the most important brother. And he is symbolic of them all. And Judah is about as carnal as you can possibly get. He says, let's just sell Joseph and make a prophet. Now he's left his brothers. He's moved into Adullam. He's, he's got a friend, Hira. He's, he's married a Canaanite. He's not following through on his commitments. You see, he's being absorbed into heathenism. He's being absorbed into paganism. He's being absorbed into that Canaanite culture. You can just see all the things that he did. Something drastic had to be done. 
the exile in Egypt was God's remedy for preserving His people. See, from the outside, it looks like a terrible tragedy, but it's actually an act of grace. See, the 400 years in Egypt will, will accomplish many things, but I'll only mention two. First thing it does is it forms the Canaanite, it forms the Israel people, the Israelite, Israelite people, into a cohesive and unified nation. See, persecution tends to do this. You get a bunch of brothers fighting, you, you bring in somebody from the outside, and guess what them brothers will do? They'll, they'll have each other's back, yes? Isn't it, isn't it amazing? Today, we're still talking about Israel. They are still a people 4,000 years later. Why? Persecution. Persecution. See, all this persecution down through the years, it's made them into who they are. It's not a, I, I wish it didn't have to be that way. But God has used persecution down through the years to keep, the, keep Israel as a unified and a cohesive people. He did it then with, with Egypt, and He continues to do it today. The second thing it does, not only does it, does it, does it make them unify with one another, it keeps them separate. God, listen, they've already shown that they'll marry Canaanites, yes? Remember uh, 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 Shechem uh, raped Dinah? And they said, well, let's marry her. And Jacob's like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. And here's, here's Judah going off and marrying a Canaanite. They've already shown they'll intermarry. They have no problem with it. God puts them in a land, Egypt, where the Egyptians despised the Israelis, despised the Jews, despised them. In fact, even if a Hebrew was willing to marry a, an Egyptian, the Egyptian says, no way, that's nasty. I'm not having anything to do with you. I mean, you talk about racial bigotry. Egyptians were as, about as racially bigoted as anybody could be, and God used that to keep his people separate. Because it, it wasn't on them. They would have gladly did it, but the Egyptians wouldn't have anything to do with it. The second thing that this story teaches us, number one, it teaches us the, the, the necessity of 400 years of slavery. The second thing it teaches us, once again, is the sovereignty of God. And I need you to listen very closely because uh, I'm going to say something here this morning that might scare a, a few of you. The, the principal theme of this chapter, even though God, by the way, is never mentioned, the providence of God, the, the sovereignty of God, is running all the way through this. Ur doesn't, doesn't give Tamar. Onan goes out of his way to say, I'm not giving her a son. And God says, you're out of here. Next in line, <laughs> step up. Judah says, I'm not giving her a son. God says, you think that? Watch this. Right? I mean, no matter what they did to try to stop it from happening, it happened anyway. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the providence of God. And it is running all throughout this chapter. God is at work bringing His purposes about even when men are actively resisting Him. I mean, that's what... Think about this story. Men are saying, we will not produce a son. Will not do it. And what happens? It happens anyway. See, God is assuring, if you get very specific, God is assuring that His promise of a coming Messiah through the tribe of Judah will come to pass. And men are doing everything they can to say, that ain't happening, there ain't no way. Er is doing it, Onan is doing it, Judah is doing it, and God, it happens anyway. You see, in spite of Ur's wickedness, in spite of Onan's wickedness, in spite of Judah's sin, in spite of Tamar's impatience, 
Perez is born, and he becomes the forefather of David and of Christ himself. Who else but God could do such a thing? Who else but God could do such a, such a thing? Let me tell you, listen, I want you to listen to me very closely here. Many Christians today are being taught that God's purposes can only be accomplished if you are faithful and you are obedient. Did you hear that? God's purposes can only be accomplished if you're faithful and if you're obedient. Now, if that's true, how do you explain this chapter? Because there ain't nobody being faithful. There's nobody being obedient in this chapter, and God's purposes come about anyway. You see, if you've been around me for very long, you know I love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I love it. It is, but why? Because it is the most comforting doctrine, one of the most comforting truths in all the Bible. You see, the sovereignty of God tells me that when God says He's going to save me, He's going to bring it about even when I'm not faithful. Even when I tend to walk in disobedience, He's still going to do it because that's who He is. That's the sovereignty of God. You see, folks, if the promise of my eternal salvation rests upon anything other than God Himself and His character and His power, I might as well quit now and avoid the rush. If it, if it, if it falls on me in any way, shape, or form, I might as well quit. Because there ain't, I can tell you, I know me. You don't know me. That, I know what's inside of me. And I don't, I, I, I'm, not that, I'm not good enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not faithful enough. But He is. He is. You see, if God is sovereign, let me tell you folks, I can't lose. I cannot lose. I can't lose. No, even when I'm faint of heart, even when I walk in disobedience. That's why Paul said this, Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I am sure of this one thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm sure that the one who started it will perfect it. Why? Because of the one. It's the one doing it. Everybody with me? Now let me tell you, many people today will be anxious about what I just said. Did you hear what I just said? Because I said, you know, even if I'm not faithful, even if I walk in disobedience, God's purposes are going to be accomplished. So some people might say, well, why should I do anything? Why, why should I struggle against these desires of the flesh? Why should I fight these spiritual battles? A- after all, if God's will is going to be done in the end, what does it matter? And let me tell you guys, I don't make light of that. That is a very real danger. In fact, it's such a real danger, that's why Scripture addresses it in Romans 5 and 6. That, that's why we have one of Paul's most famous statements. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, he says. Because people in that day were saying the same thing. Paul, you're saying that we're going to be, that, that, that God is sovereign, so what does it matter if I sin? Why, just more grace. Paul goes on to say, no, that's not the way it works. Paul goes on to say, you were a slave of sin, now you're a slave of righteousness. Right? You see, is that a real danger that people will say stuff like that? Sure, but the danger does not disprove the doctrine. God is sovereign. That's why the Bible can say things like the Holy Spirit that's given to you is a guarantee of your inheritance. Listen, when God guarantees something, can I tell you it's guaranteed? Can I tell you that it's guaranteed? My point is this. 
God is going to accomplish His plans and His purposes with you or without you. God is going to accomplish His purposes with you or without you. But let me tell you, He is best exalted and He is best glorified and He is best proclaimed when we walk in obedience to Him and to His Word. He is best exalted when Jesus is being recreated in us from glory to glory. See, that's why Paul says this. This is the same writer, by the way. And the first thing he says this, I urge you, he says, to walk in a matter, matter worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul will tell us over and over again, walk worthy, be holy, be separate, be clean, be pure. Doesn't he? He admonishes us, he encourages us over and over to obey, to be holy, to be separate. But then he writes in a letter to Timothy, he says this, But even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. See, that's the sovereignty of God, and that's why I love it. Even when I fall, even when I make a mistake, even when I disobey, he's sovereign. He's going to pick me back up, and we're going to keep moving. Uh, we're going to move on. One more thing, and I didn't put this in there, but I was just thinking about this this morning. Boy, if this, if this chapter doesn't just scream grace, I don't know what else does. Grace. None of, you look at some of these people in this, you look at Judah and you think, Judah? <laughs> The lion of the tribe of Judah? What? Why is he? Why, why, God, why did you get rid of him and put somebody in more worthy? Then it wouldn't have been grace. That's what grace is. Think about grace. You're never too bad, but you're never good enough. It's always about him. Next week we turn to Genesis 39 and we pick back up with, uh, with Joseph and his, um, his plot in Egypt. And, and we'll get to that then. Let's pray. Father, we